SCP-7027. A is for Annihilation. Death is a common fear for most people, which is no surprise. The uncertainty of the unknown after we leave this world gives plenty of people cause for concern, and even if they're more sure of their beliefs, most people are never ready to leave. SCP-7027 showcases a group of monks that not only do not fear their deaths, they welcome it, but not just any ordinary death. Instead, they seek total oblivion. Let's take a look. SCP-7027 is an anomalous phenomena, primarily harnessed as a process of physical transfiguration and psychological augmentation by members of a monastic order located in the Karakoram mountain range. The anomaly initially manifests in infected individuals as a 15mm to 25mm diameter black circular dot on the center of their forehead. This mark superficially resembles a decorative bindi, but is irremovable unless surgically excised soon after infection. As the infection progresses, this dot will expand and consume the face of its host, causing the front of the skull to sink and eventually collapse into an indeterminately deep void before slowly spreading to the rest of the body. Flesh blackened in this way does not reflect any light, and will begin to develop holes and fissures, further disfiguring the individual. These holes, like the aperture that began on the forehead, showcase physically impossible interior dimensions, and any objects introduced to these voids are ultimately unrecoverable. Additionally, these cavities produce a continuous discharge which visibly behaves in a manner similar to a hot gas or plasma, but appears almost completely opaque, save for its outermost zone which bears a semi-translucent quality, blurring the space around it. All efforts to extract a sample of this substance have failed, leaving its chemical composition unknown but it has been discovered that the temperature around the fissures steadily decreases, closely approaching absolute zero as the individual enters the final state of infection. At this point, they disintegrate before disappearing completely, leaving no trace of matter, even if the subject is held in a vacuum-sealed containment unit. The progression of this anomaly violates the law of conversation of mass, with the subatomic particles of the individual undergoing annihilation without the apparent introduction of their respective antiparticles. This transformation takes the course of decades to fully carry out, and will inevitably result in the destruction of vital organs, including the brain and heart. At this stage, the individuals are clinically deceased, requiring neither sleep nor sustenance, but they will remain mobile and continue to wander through the monastery when not seated in meditation. The Foundation has yet to uncover the exact source of the anomaly, but physical symptoms of the infection occur only after the monks have confined themselves within the walls of the monastery. These interiors are only large enough to allow for meditation and function as a form of sensory deprivation. The monks believe that by immersing themselves in darkness, they allow their bodies to become its host. 
Personnel at the site set up near the monastery have reported possible paranatural encounters, but so far the reports are merely anecdotal. The list includes sightings of mobile humanoid shadows without an apparent source, higher frequency of night terrors and sleep paralysis, sudden transitory cold spots, even within the insulated and heated sections of the site, higher than average radio interference, the appearance and rapid disappearance of black stains throughout the monastery, and long-term personnel displaying a steady decrease in feelings of self-worth during routine psychological examinations. The Foundation became aware of the anomaly in 1956, following reports of unusual disfigurements occurring among members of an isolated Buddhist sect in Tibet. Due to the singular nature of their philosophy, the sect and monastery had no formal name, but the residents of neighboring villages commonly referred to them as the Empty Ones, or literally, those who are empty of being. The monks were classified as a group of interest, and it's noted that they practice an extreme form of asceticism, and forbid the use of personal names, depictions of the human form, or even the preservation of their own history. They believe that enlightenment can only be achieved through drastic humility, and they must be purged of vanity and pride, with corporeal existence regarded as the final arrogance to be undone. Through the anomaly, they believe that they can permanently escape samsara, the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Despite their surface resemblance to other Buddhist groups, the monks here bear many significant deviations, including believing in Akriyavada, a heretical doctrine which claims that moral acts have no consequences, and therefore no influence on rebirth. Unlike most monastic traditions, the group includes both men and women, many initiated as children, and all are expected to practice the same level of asceticism, regardless of age, gender, or physical health. This life of austerity includes the renunciation of material possessions, avoidance of physical pleasures, and meager diets that leave members in a state of chronic starvation, though without many of the typical symptoms. Members of the order also practice ritual self-mortification, believing that pain, humiliation, self-denial, and disfigurement aid in the destruction of ego. Prior to containment, methods of humiliation often involved visiting neighboring villages, stripping down, smearing themselves in dirt and ash, and non-verbally begging or inciting the locals into physically assaulting them. Despite frequent injury and infection, this behavior has never been observed to result in fatalities, and the villagers regard their actions as part of a tradition beneficial to the monks, as opposed to angry violence. The order does not actively recruit, and instead receives initiates by anomalous means, with newly arrived members refusing to communicate, suggesting prior knowledge of at least some of the order's tenets. As they are unwilling to divulge information, their reasons for joining are unknown, and it's presently hypothesized that the anomaly's influence extends beyond the monastery and is capable of compelling certain individuals to join through suggestion, or possibly even direct control. 
The foundation allows these individuals within the site, as they provide a steady flow of research subjects, and they willingly accept their permanent containment. Due to the extreme terrain of the region, it's possible that some called to the monastery do not survive the journey, and all of the members appear to be of Tibetan or Nepalese descent, so it's likely that the anomaly's reach is limited to the region. The monks maintain a vow of silence, but leave a single person to speak for the sect, the de facto leader of the order, who refers to himself as Bodhisattva. His position requires that he refrain from certain aspects of the faith in order to facilitate the path to nirvana for other monks. As a result, he has so far avoided the infection, but he intends to seek a successor so that he might begin the process. In an interview with him, a Foundation doctor asks him if he has no name, as he must have had a life before the monastery. The man says that they are a slate wiped clean, as their paths are erased along with their names, and there is only the way. The doctor asks about the way, and the man replies that they follow the way of the Black Buddha, and that to exist, to impose yourself on reality, is the foundational conceit upon which all suffering is derived. It is not a path to walk, or a goal to be sought, but rather it is simply surrender. The doctor asks what they become, but the man says that becoming implies creation, while they are unmade. They are embraced by sunyata, meaning emptiness or voidness, a truth without color or shape that permeates, festers, and soaks them in darkness. The doctor remarks that there are swifter methods to end your life, but the man says that he fails to understand. Death is meaningless, as your flesh is returned to the earth and the soul to samsara, so the cycle continues. There is no mercy or enlightenment in the turning of the wheel. The doctor wonders if existence is really so awful, as it seems that much of their pain is self-inflicted. The man replies that life is suffering, but it is not without a certain insidious beauty. It fascinates, enthralls, and binds us to this realm, to fragile and fleeting forms. The illusion is dispelled the moment you recognize it for the falsehood that it is, and there can be no return to ignorance, no matter how comforting the lie may be. They seek escape, before the truth is lost to death and rebirth, to the ceaseless turning of the hated wheel. The doctor says that he understands now, but asks why this method and how it works. The man says that there are three great illusions which bind humans, life, the world, and the self. We must surrender to the obliteration of the self if we are ever to transcend. One cannot fight the self, for it feeds on struggle, and this tether cannot be broken. You can, however, slip free of it by sinking to the darkest, most wretched depths. When they achieve sunyata, the void consumes that which they manifest, and a shackle cannot bind what no longer exists. It slips away, like rain from our hands, like dust upon a wind. 
That is the obliteration of the self. Ground-penetrating radar detected the presence of man-made objects beneath the monastery and its surrounding land, including a number of large ash deposits containing traces of paper, birch bark, and silk, most likely immolated manuscripts, and heavily damaged Buddhist statues and murals which have been carbon dated to the 14th century CE. Reconstructed statues were found to resemble the Buddha seated in a lotus position, but without a face, and it's hypothesized that the statues were ritually defaced to resemble infected individuals, only to be shattered and buried sometime later. Careful restoration of the murals revealed depictions of robed figures wreathed by an aura of black flames, undoubtedly representing SCP-7027. Based on this evidence, it's surmised that the Order had not always forbade artistic representation, but later adopted the belief, resulting in or preceding an iconoclastic episode between the 14th and 15th century CE. On April 17, 1987, the monastery was damaged by a natural landslide, although the section that was hit was rarely used, so there were no fatalities. The disaster, however, would reveal the presence of man-made structures beneath the monastery, and following an archaeological survey, it was determined that the ruins were Epipaleolithic, built not long after the arrival of modern humans to the region. The building material used consisted of stone, bone, and clay, though the architecture itself displays a level of ingenuity uncommon among contemporaneous cultures. The structure had been built at the mouth of a natural mountain cavern, which was discovered to contain a gallery of well-preserved parietal art, including a pair of murals. The first depicts a tall white humanoid with their left hand over their heart, where splashes of red pigment suggest injury, and their right hand extended with the palm face up. Six ochre-color humanoids prostrate themselves before the larger figure and a black, formless substance rises from the ground and enters the open mouths of the smaller human figures. Despite its greater size, the white humanoid is not depicted as domineering, and is more likely a teacher or spiritual leader than a king or conqueror. Its appearance, along with its countenance and pose, has led one Tibetan specialist to make a comparison to a mythical monkey ancestor of the Tibetan people. The second mural displays a complex, three-leveled scenario centered around a tree with deep roots. Viewed from the bottom up, it depicts black serpents gnawing on the roots which have black veins, perhaps to represent poisoning, infection, or the spread of a curse. The taint rises through the roots, into the second level, where humanoids bite into the roots, removing the taint as someone would suck out venom. The humanoids are missing limbs, and numerous black spots are seen on their bodies. At the highest level, the tree is healthy and full of leaves, surviving thanks to the sacrifice of those below. If the radiocarbon dating of this site is accurate, it's possible that individuals have been working to contain the anomaly for 20,000 years.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On September 12, 1997, a security officer entered the site infirmary to request medication for what he believed at the time to be a sinus headache. Medical personnel, however, immediately noticed a black spot on his forehead, and after a thorough physical examination, determined that the subject was infected with 7027, exhibiting the first visible symptom of the transformation. The officer was classified as anomalous, and became the first, and so far only, recorded case of an infected individual not being a member of the monastic order. He willingly cooperated with containment and observation, becoming a critical source of information due to not being bound to the vow of silence. A doctor was assigned to him, Dr. Miyazawa, and during his initial interview, she apologizes on behalf of the Foundation as they would have taken stronger safety precautions had they known that the infection could occur this way. The officer says that they couldn't have known, but she still tells him that they'll do everything they can to undo his predicament. She asks him if he had any physical contact with any of the infected individuals, which he hadn't, and if he ever went into the inner walls of the monastery, which he hadn't. She asks him how he's feeling, as he seems rather calm, and he says that he knows he should feel horror at his situation, but he feels nothing at all. She asks him if he has a history of depression, but he doesn't, so they can probably assume that this is a symptom. He says that he should be angry that he can't feel anything, and his brain wants to scream and rage, but there's just emptiness, like trying to locate a word in a dictionary, only to find that it's been cut out. Now there's just a hole. By early 1998, the infection had spread to the officer's left eye and formed a vein that wrapped around his neck and connected to a newly formed black mark on the cervical region of the spine. He occasionally reports headaches before expelling dark smoke and sludge from his mouth, with both substances evaporating too rapidly to allow analysis. He also suffers frequent and violent tremors, causing his body to contort unnaturally, and he walks with a stiff, shambling gait. As the infected belonging to the monastery do not display similar reactions, it's possible that their teachings and practices, particularly meditation, ultimately allow them to better tolerate the infection's effects. In another interview, Dr. Miyazawa finds the officer curled on the floor, staring at the ceiling with his remaining eye. She says that he's clearly in a state of acute distress, and asks if the morphine he received this morning helped, which it hasn't. She asks how he would describe his pain on a scale from 1 to 10, and he replies that there's no scale that could possibly capture the pain he feels at the moment so she puts it down as a 10. 
She remarks that he's continuing to display unusual calmness and clarity despite this, and he says that there's a separation. The pain is visceral. He's in unending agony, but it also feels like an out-of-body experience. He then suffers from a coughing fit, causing black smoke to emanate from various orifices, and mentions that the monks can take a decade to change while well, he's been in containment for less than five months. He asks if another security officer can come and put a bullet in his head, although with his condition it would just be one more hole. Dr. Miyazawa agrees, but says that she'll bring up his request for merciful termination to the director. Unfortunately, due to his research potential, the request was denied. His transformation displayed significant deviation from other infected individuals, warping his body in conjunction with its increasing number of void pits, each of which steadily grew in circumference at a rate of around 1.3 centimeters a year. He became fused to the containment room floor, and prior to the cessation of brain activity, he developed symptoms of dementia and acute memory loss though it is unknown if these were caused directly by the infection or were a natural response to his trauma. By the year 2000, he lost the ability to see, but retained his mouth and right ear, so another interview was conducted. Dr. Miyazawa asks him to describe his recent experiences, to which he says that the shadows won't stop, they reach inside and take and take their greedy claws that scrape and tear. He would bleed for them, but all he has to offer is dust and oil. She then asks him to describe the pain, and he responds that a part of him is in agony, but that part is falling deeper and deeper, and he must be afraid. A cool sludge moves beneath his skin, but as far as he can remember, it was always there. He then vomits and holds the black spewage in his hands, remarking on how it came out before smearing the substance across the floor where it rapidly evaporates. She then asks about the shadows he mentioned, and he says that there are skittering shapes in the darkness, yellow carapaces, a pale gold, a hundred bodies each with a hundred legs. He knows now that they were sacred once, and asks the doctor if she can smell his fumes as its incense. Like opium and myrrh and ancient books, it lingers on his tongue and tastes like forgotten dreams. It's not his memory. Something else remembers it, something down deep below. Miyazawa asks who remembers, and he says, the librarian. It reminds them of the kingdom under the mountain, and reminds them of home. His home is a cage, but where they are just feels like one. The dark and cold preserves, that's all that mattered. He then loses consciousness, and wouldn't regain it for fourteen days, at which point he was unaware of the last conversation. By late 2001, his lower body and left arm coalesced into a shapeless, hardened mound, and his remaining epidermis developed a grey, cracked appearance. 
We're provided one more interview with the poor security officer, although he's clearly on the last leg of his sanity. She asks him if he remembers her voice and knows who she is, but he just calls out to his mother, saying that it's cold and to let him in. He talks about a memory, of a memory, of a memory, and then nothing, before emitting a noise combining a laugh, a crying sound, and a scream. She asks him to describe what he feels, but he just talks about scraps and dregs being flushed down a drain, and says that their end comes for us all. He says that the new king made them forget what the old king showed them, and when they found the truth again, they buried it. The rituals remain, but they don't know what it means. It's better not to know, as better a blessing than a curse. Flesh is used to sponge up so much nothing, and what a filthy, polluted filter we make. It isn't a hole, even though it looks like one. He is a hole, but he's not the darkness. It's an eclipse, and the highest did it, after what they did, all for trying to lift us to their heights. Their moon is a deathless city, a city of knowledge, of secrets and forgotten things, and it casts a long, long shadow. Under the corpse light of their failed black sun, you would never know it was golden. He's cut off as the remainder of his skull suddenly caves in, followed by the complete collapse of his body. Unlike the other infected, who disintegrate into nothing, the officer's body spread across the containment chamber as its void apertures merged to create a single portal. His remaining husk formed a 3.2 meter radius ring around the newly manifested portal, rendering it permanently fixed for the time being. The portal's interior displays properties identical to the smaller apertures created by the infection, but due to its size and apparent stability, unmanned exploration was deemed feasible. The interior environment of the portal is hazardous to organic life, but exhibits conditions similar to the vacuum of space, though with abnormally low temperatures, comparable to the coldest known region of the universe. Despite these similarities, there is nothing else to suggest that the portal connects to outer space, as no stars have been observed from within. Though no conclusive evidence has been discovered, the most accepted hypothesis is that the portal leads to another dimension. There does exist a downward gravitational pull, but its source has yet to be discovered. Considering these factors, it was determined that the best method of exploration would be with a remote probe. The probe was sent in on April 10th, 2002 but the site didn't receive any notable transmissions until July 16th, 2020, more than 18 years later. Collected data includes a number of images depicting gold-colored artificial structures, which together appeared to form a sprawling metropolis. These images were captured approximately 46 hours earlier, over a 12-second period, before all contact with the probe was lost the device presumably destroyed upon impact. So, 
We're certainly not given all of the answers here, but there was definitely some misdirection going on initially. The monks of the monastery believe that by infecting themselves with this anomaly, they can become obliterated and escape the cycle of life and rebirth, reaching their true enlightenment. What we can put together though is that the current monks continue a tradition that they no longer completely understand, as the original purpose of them becoming infected was not to reach enlightenment, but rather to act as sponges to soak up the nothingness. This nothingness is connected to a deathless city, the one seen through the portal, a city of knowledge and secrets and forgotten things. The security officer seemed to imply that the infection is a punishment on humanity perhaps, or earth based on the mural with the tree, and the monks make a sacrifice to become infected with it to protect the rest of us. It's possible that we'll see more of this deathless city and its people's relationship with humans in the future, but for now it's a chilling tale of body horror and the self-sacrifice of the religiously misguided.